0: Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the top-tier brewing stand. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com.
2: Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Back greetings, for- greetings. <laughs> greetings, greetings. Somebody wanted you to say, what was it? Um, was up? What, what, no, they wanted you to say uh, something, bitches. Oh, yeah, um, what up, bitches? Well, what up, bitches? <laughs> it's that's, that's, <laughs> it's <that's>, not me. <laughs> that's not a Palmerism, yeah, it, oh. it just wouldn't,
3: wouldn't work. Yeah, and even "was up, I mean, it brings, you know, bad
2: beer to mind. <laughs> That's so. yeah, a little too what eighties nineties. I don't remember when, yeah. when that was. I'm so old. I go all the way back to the sixties. Yeah, a long time ago.
3: Uh, I was just re- remarking to myself this morning that Rush is my favorite band of all time. You know, yeah. thirty years still going strong.
2: <laughs> wow. Yeah, and uh, it's not quite thirty years, but we're still going strong. We're uh, yeah, yeah. Even got our new sponsor, uh, Blickman Engineering. They uh, yeah. Uh, uh, manufacturers of uh, some uh, uh, very high quality and uh, very high...
4: High tech? Know, high tech, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. I was going to say high clever. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> pieces I mean. of engineering, you know. Uh, rethinking the way things are. Uh, I've been exchanging quite a bit of uh, email with uh, John Blickman um, just uh, you know recently, and he's been telling me about a lot of the, the new things that they're working on and it's really cool you know he's always uh, you know they're looking at things uh differently they they're trying to understand you know the physics of what they're trying to accomplish and why you know previous solutions for something doesn't work and then uh, come with a new solution so i think it's really cool i like the way uh, he
3: thinks because it's kind of like how how i do i mean when you're looking when you're trying to design a new mash ton from a cooler or something and you know, you read about a guy saying, well, I just grabbed this piece of braid that I, you know, pulled off the water heater and uh, a little silicone glue and some epoxy here. And I found a, a fitting laying on the floor and I whipped that together and it works great. I got this great efficiency. And it's like, yeah, that's that's good. Good on you, mate. But uh, to me, I like a solution to be elegant as well. I want something that, you know, comes together Elegantly, and I think that's that's what John does too
2: mm-hmm,
3: with mm-hmm. his products.
2: Yeah, I think things are designed from the ground up to you know, solve a problem when they, yeah. when they do them. So I think that's pretty really cool. And uh, good on you, mate! I, I tell you, it's uh, Australia Day coming up, January twenty sixth. huh that's like uh, I, I guess it's uh, controversial in a way because that's uh, like the day that the uh, British sailed into you know the harbor and uh, you know laid claim and to, the, to the Australia yeah and uh so indigenous peoples I guess you know there's that whole thing but yeah. uh you know uh regardless of our friends down in Australia are c- celebrating uh the long weekend uh yeah. you know hopefully they're up it's probably what uh one am there now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah but it's also
3: probably pretty hot there too relatively I mean middle of summer right
2: oh, yeah, yeah yeah yeah
3: and uh and I imagine in North Queensland, they're going through the wet right now.
2: Yeah. Well, and you've been having some big, big rain down where you're at. Uh, yeah. Yeah? A full week
3: of it. I mean, you know, the, every day it rained hard. I couldn't uh-huh. believe it. it was, it's unusual. And um, streets flooded. And this morning, though, it's just gorgeous out. I mean, the sky is so blue, you know, like like you don't see outside of Montana.
2: Uh-huh.
3: Um and uh, there's snow on the mountains behind us. It's really pretty out. Right?
2: Yeah, I was stuck with my nephew-in-law uh, over Christmas. We were down there uh, visiting my sister and and uh, you know, her family, and and uh, we were talking barbecues. They moved into this new house, and we we're talking about barbecues. And I said, "Well, you know, it's nice to have a bit of cover over the over the barbecue. So even when it's raining, you can you can grill." He goes, "No, it doesn't rain down here." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> i guess it does once in a while once yeah. in a while you get you get some frog stranglers down there huh?
3: yeah that's for sure it was it was like florida one day i swear i i couldn't believe it mm-hmm. you know just heavy like like we saw in orlando a few years back
2: yeah um, yeah we were there for the the conference and it, and it was it was really coming down yeah that one in uh in june they had some of those summer storms yeah it's uh it's a lot of mudslides um
3: up in the hills, but uh, nothing came our way, fortunately, and um, just have a few branches in the yard and no fallen trees, so we got lucky. I guess down Long Beach, Long Beach they had uh, quite a bit of flooding because mm-hmm. they're, they're so close to sea level there, and the land's really flat, and just right. the water doesn't drain anywhere.
2: Yeah, yeah, goes here, in, here. Can't go in the ocean if the the tide's too high. Huh?
3: Yeah, yeah. Here, I mean, it all washes downhill, taking
2: cars and trucks with it, but. <laughs> When you had those big fires, and that's why you're getting all those those mudslides yeah, that's and, the truth, uh, well, and how about those poor people, people in haiti huh now, that's, oh yeah now, that's yeah. some some serious tragedy you know and i, I know uh yeah everybody around the world has already heard about that, Yeah. Uh, hopefully Red
3: cross donations you know, doing and such some donations, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it's it's amazing to realize, uh, you know the I guess the number of people killed. You know, rivals that tsunami in in uh, mm-hmm. Indonesia, mm-hmm. In yeah, India, figuring uh, two hundred thousand
2: dead. Wow, and you know, and it's not just the dead; it's the people who are surviving. You know, they're they're having yeah. a rough time of it. So if you uh, if you got the wherewithal, I know times are tight for everybody. You know, hit the Red Cross up with some uh, some Haiti money, and uh, you yep. know, do what you can. Definitely, uh, definitely would be appreciated, I'm sure, by, by those uh, on the receiving end.
3: Yeah. Should we give the people a rundown of what we're going to talk about today?
2: Yeah, yeah. Justin, what's our, uh, what's our topic for the day?
5: Great topic today, one that I've always been interested in as well. Howdy,
6: Jay-Z. This is Scott from LaGrange, Kentucky. I was hoping that you could help me out by shedding some light into something that usually gets glazed over,
1: the boil. What's going on in my brew pot, and when is it happening? Besides
6: the darkening and evaporating, how does time and temperature, those real violent boils, affect the outcome? Thanks for helping me understand why I'm doing what I'm doing.
2: Cheers. All right, Scott. That's a good question. I I like that question because, you know, we all, myself included we're like, all right, well, we boil it, and then, uh, you know, oh, it's sanitizing it and concentrating it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and yeah, maybe the hops and uh, uh, yeah, and then we cool it down. We put it in. Okay, boil done. You know, it's a much more complex topic than that, isn't it?
3: Yeah, the, a, a, the I mean, you have your grain bill that defines your you know your your flavors of the pro, you know the, of the beer you're making, but to a large extent, those flavor a lot of those flavors in the beer are created in the boil mm-hmm. from the ingredients. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it can't get. We can get quite complex in it. Okay.
2: Well, uh, and um, before we go much further into the boil itself, why don't uh, why don't we talk uh, really the the uh, mechanics or the engineering behind the boil? We got uh, John Blickman on the line. Hey, John, you there?
6: Hi-de-ho, neighbors.
2: Hey, John. Hey, thanks for, for joining us. All right. So now, now I got two Johns on the line. Uh, I'm going to have to call <laughs> one uh, Rock and one. Uh, one 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 Blickman, yeah, it almost ties
3: a record for you, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> Two Johns at once, yes. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, John, t- ex- explain to us um, from an engineer's point of view. You know uh, what's happening in the boiler? How do you get the boiler? You know the the burners, the heat, the, the you know. Talk to us about that.
6: Well, obviously the key thing for for me as an engineer is looking at um the fuel and en- fuel energy input mm-hmm. which uh in most cases for home brewers is going to be propane and how do i get that energy into the pot to do what i want it to do which is um uh add energy to uh to the liquid that's in it mm-hmm. and uh there's a lot of uh, information you see on burners um, You know, 210,000 BTU burners and 30,000 BTU burners. What they're really talking about is BTUs per hour or how much energy you're putting in per hour. And um, I have found uh, on all the work that we did developing the the top-tier burners that uh, the published data isn't necessarily uh, correct. right. Uh, it's it's a very easy thing to measure. You you simply burn the burner at at uh, maximum power for one hour, and you weigh the amount of uh, fuel that you burned.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And there's you know there's a given amount of energy about ninety five thousand uh, BTUs or twenty two thousand BTUs in a pound of uh, of propane. But that's just what you have burned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's just that's how much you've spent on fuel.
2: Right. So the, not the not how thing, much uh, heat went into the into the pot.
6: Right, so that's when you you get into um, what I call transfer efficiency, or how efficient is your burner then uh, of getting that energy into the pot, mm-hmm. and um, that's a fairly easy calculation too. Um, you there's uh, so many BTUs. One BTU is the energy required to heat one pound of water or one degree Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. So you basically heat uh, the the water from say, 68 to about 180. I generally don't try to go all the way up to boil because you can get some localized boiling. That will affect your, your uh, data a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you've got a delta T, and then you've got, uh, knowing the gallons, and 8.34 pounds per gallon, uh, you know how much energy you've put in that pot in a certain amount of time. So then it's a simple calculation to know how much went into the pot. You know how much fuel energy you put in. And dividing those two, you can get your transfer efficiency. And um the surprisingly the most efficient burners are those little teeny uh uh Walmart type uh turkey burners. Hmm. But they're extremely low power and they take forever to heat. Mm-hmm. And even those are about thirty thirty six percent efficient.
7: Hmm.
6: And then you've got some like the uh the real high powered wok type burners. Mm-hmm. Um they uh produce an impressive amount of uh of heat but they're not very efficient. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, you'll you'll range from twenty five to thirty six percent efficiency.
2: Mm-hmm. Is there anything uh, a home brewer can do to improve the efficiency of their burner? Let's say I got a burner on a stand of some kind, and I got my pot on top of it, and there's no real, you know, other, uh, you know, wind blockage or something like that. Does putting like aluminum foil around it help or? You know, what can I do to, to, to make my system more efficient?
6: Yeah, putting a shield around to, to one block the, the um, wind from the flame, which is going to cause flame instability and, and you lose a lot of energy. But um, a lot of that is just energy that's just getting directed to at the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So if you put some kind of uh, shield around your, your burner so it's just not an open flame uh, at the bottom of it, um, that's going to improve your transfer efficiency quite a bit.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, and what about uh, you know pot size to burner diameter? Is there anything? I would imagine the the wider my burner diameter, um, and the small to to the ratio of my pot diameter. Um, you know, a small pot on a wide burner. I'm not gonna. It's not gonna be as efficient. I'm gonna get more heat up the sides, or is that? that that's
6: incorrect? absolutely correct. Okay. Or if you've got a uh, Uh, A pot that's real short I mean there's kind of a trade-off If you have a pot that's real You know squatty Real short and wide um, You have a lot more surface area So you lose a lot of heat Mm -hmm. Um, So there's You know there's We designed the Boilermaker pots um, At a 1.2 aspect ratio Or diameter to height Um, So they had a When they were at the max liquid height They had a minimum surface area And And that let us heat it a little faster, and then they're also consistent between sizes. Um, so you don't want to go too wide, uh, but you don't want to certainly go too small. You definitely want your uh, your burner smaller than in diameter than your pot, at least the area that's exposed to the flame.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
6: and never never run your flame past the bottom of your your pot,
2: because mm-hmm. then you're just blowing heat up the sides, and
6: yeah, you're just, just wasting it. A-
2: now, now, what about, uh, you know, the the pot materials? I know, uh, you know, back in the day, they would make their copper pots uh, or, you know, pots out of, out of or kettles out of uh, copper. is good, uh, you know, easier metal to work with and better heat transfer, but really not that strong and not that easy to, to clean. Also, they used to make them, I guess, in an onion shape. Uh, in order to enhance the motion of the boil, is there anything to that, or was that just something they, you know, they they thought would work back then?
6: You know, I really haven't uh, uh, done any uh, work or anything with non-flat bottom pots. Mostly, they're just they're they're difficult to support and hold and everything mm-hmm. else.
2: Mm-hmm. Not as stable.
6: Yeah. Um, so I really, really don't have any any data there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one yeah, thing yeah, I would say either. is, you know, a, a spherical shape has got the most volume with the least amount of surface area.
2: Mm. Okay, So, so that heat would,
6: loss would be uh, minimized with that.
2: That might have been what they were doing there because, uh, you know, they, all that was, you know, coal fired and pretty hard to, to heat something with, uh, you know, to boiling with uh, that kind of setup. So that might have been a big part of it.
3: Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the steam jacketed uh, boil kettles that they have in professional breweries are kind of spherical on the bottom, for that reason. Hmm.
6: Yes, and then also the the uh, uh, liquefied steam then collects at the bottom.
2: Yeah,
6: so you can drain mm-hmm. it
2: back out to recirculate. Oh uh, yes, if it was flat, you'd you'd have a hard time draining it. So if you if you have the the uh, low point in the kettle, then and it all just drains right back out through there. Right. Ah. Uh. See, you get these engineers talking about this stuff, and it all just makes <laughs> sense all of a sudden. You're like, oh, okay. Mm. That makes but, sense. Uh, so we just
6: have a bunch of jargon to make it sound like we know what we're talking about?
3: <laughs> mm. You mentioned uh, the conductivity of metals. Um, copper is the best. Um, I'm, I'm going off strictly off memory. I don't have any numbers in front of me. But I believe copper is twice as of, is, uh, effective as um, aluminum. In terms of uh, conductivity, mm-hmm. but um, and then about and that's about five and, and about five times greater than stainless steel.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but what you were at run into is um, the thickness also plays a direct role. And so, if you have a thin, um, you know, uh, wall, you get better heat transfer across the thin wall than you do a thick wall. And that's where you you know um, cookware these days. They'll include a copper layer or an aluminum layer on the bottom of a pot mm-hmm. uh, to enhance the heat transfer and spread out the heat through the uh, a thin stainless. But then the thin stainless wall uh, allows quick transfer from the aluminum to the liquid. Mm-hmm. So you know your metals can can be uh, manipulated to help your boil that way.
2: So what's the heat transfer of a lead pot? I bet you a lead pot would work pretty well.
6: <laughs> a silver uh-huh. pot, I believe, would be the best. Ah, okay. I think silver conducts heat even a smidge better than uh, copper. That
2: I could could probably, be, I remember, you could probably get one hammered out of gold. That was that twenty-four karat pot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, now that you're 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 a sponsor, John, you're going to have to fund these these types of uh, research for me, okay? And I recently learned I'll titanium right is that. really
3: good too. <laughs> That? You, could, you could make a titanium pot because is really good. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's actual conductivity isn't that great, but um, I guess it has low heat content, so it doesn't absorb heat.
2: It just conducts it. No, oh, it just passes yeah. it right through. It doesn't hold on to any of it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Um, well, and what about, uh, you know, um, those jet burners? Uh, uh, they... they Put a lot of heat in one spot on the pot, uh, and my understanding is that you can actually get some sort of scorching through something like that. Is that is that true?
6: I personally have not experienced um, scorching with any of the burners. Um, I think what the the to me the the big difference between the the burners that. You know kind of direct the heat in one area like the the walk jet type burners mm-hmm. or the um you know the the walmart type you know uh, jet burners you know just the the uh, uh single orifice the, the single point uh units um they tend to just put a tremendous amount of heat in the middle um and they just uh, they just send a lot of the heat to the outside they just they just don't um led a nice even distribution of heat over the whole bottom of the pot. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: You know, and that's why we tended towards a little bit different burner for the top tier, which um, had, you know, over a hundred small nozzles that uh, distributed over a greater surface area and found it a lot more efficient and used Mm -hmm. less propane. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, uh, what's the difference between... um uh you know if i'm was the you know the heat content of uh let's say propane energy content of propane versus natural gas, and how do you you know can you can you can you uh you know like report one of those burners to to work on natural gas
6: yes almost all of them you can report a um, rejet mm-hmm. to burn on natural gas and I think off the top of my head i think the uh the heat content of of gas is about 80 percent of that of propane Mm
7: -hmm.
6: just there's just less carbons and more hydrogens and um uh, we actually we just rejetted um the top tier burners to run on gas Mm -hmm. and um you know one of the key limitations is how much air you can move uh through your venturi and how much gas you can move through your orifice well that sounded a little
2: <laughs> Yeah, I, I can move a plenty of gas through <laughs> my orifice, that's that's for sure. Right? Depends on the pressure. Yeah, ask my wife and uh she'll tell you, Oh yeah, yeah I'm very successful at that.
6: Uh, anyway. <laughs> that that kinda determines how much energy you're gonna get out. Uh huh. We ended up about a fifteen percent D rate off of propane, which wasn't too bad.
7: Right, right,
2: okay. So And you,
6: then and then typical gas pressure is about six inches of water, uh residential gas pressure, so uh, there's a limit as
2: to how much gas can move as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, the other thing I heard about, um, you know, setting up your boil, and I've, I've done this myself, is uh, to set up my burner just slightly off-center and, you know, you get kind of a more of a rolling action, uh, you know, from one side to the other of the, uh, of the kettle. Is that uh, of any benefit or... Uh you know, are, have, you, have you heard about that? Uh, I know some of the uh, pro-brewer equipment, They, uh, you know, it's, it's a little off-center when they do something like that.
6: You know, I've never personally tried that. Um, the, I, I guess mostly because I've never really had an issue with getting a, a very vigorous boil. Mm-hmm. Um, one, uh, one thing I did do was uh, put a little spreadsheet together. I was talking with John a little bit uh, before the show on um, how much energy, okay, there's, you want to get your water up to uh, boil or your wort up to boil as quickly as possible just to save time. Um, so there's a certain amount of energy that's needed for that. The, uh, the next step is how do I get a full rolling boil? And, you know, typical evaporation rates um, that I've used and seen is, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15% of your, uh, of your uh, starting boil Uh, over a period of an hour or an hour and a half. And um, so then there's going to be a lower amount required to do that because there's so much energy uh, required to uh, vaporize uh, one pound of uh, water or one gallon of water. So um, we actually uh, have a little spreadsheet. It takes about uh, half, maybe a third of the uh, burner energy to maintain a good solid boil, I actually um, uh, did, did some quick calculations. It was pretty pretty straightforward to figure that out on how much uh, you would need to just evaporate that amount. And I find if you're evaporating that amount, that kind of drives a nice heavy rolling boil.
2: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right. Well, uh, Palmer, you got any more questions for uh, Mr. Blickman while we got him on the line?
3: Um, well I was just racking my brain trying to think of some good ones um the i guess um one one comment that occurred to me while we were talking was uh you know when you brought up the uh, off center uh, placement of this of heat mm-hmm. to kind of you know encourage uh, warp movement during the boil mm-hmm. um, I think that uh, I think that 's more relevant to the professional brewing scale where you know the where the boil kettle may be you know six feet deep mm-hmm. um, and you're trying to you know move a a large volume of liquid, I mm-hmm. think even with uh even with john's you know thirty gallon pot we're only talking maybe you know two feet or work uh, depth mm-hmm. um, in a pot so the it's a lot easier to get work turnover you know in that kind of in, in at that scale than it is at the professional scale so um you know, maybe a, lot of, a couple, of, you know, homebrewers will right. you know try setting their heat off the side and see if it changes mm. the results. But I'm I feeling like it's uh, it's not a necessity, is what I'm <laughs> bringing up.
2: Well, maybe if you have a uh, you know an underpowered burner, uh, yeah, and, and you're having a trouble getting a good uh, good work movement uh, in your kettle, you could move the the burner off to the side a little bit. Um, I imagine there's a uh, diminishing returns if you move that that burner too far off to the side. You're going to get what uh, uh, John was saying about you know heat escaping around the sides of the kettle instead of you know directly uh, firing the bottom of the kettle. So yeah, uh, you don't oh, want and, to and make too sure far. that make sure that pot is really well supported too. Right. Don't want bo- <laughs> boiling work
3: dumping on the on the floor on your foot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that's one thing I like about the uh, the top tier burners is it actually has the burners the are well connected. Well, yeah, and the this, the uh, <laughs> there's uh, retainers on the side to uh, help uh, keep keep you from sliding the pot off.
2: Right, I mm-hmm. love that. I, the first time I saw that, I'm like, oh, what a what a brilliant design, and uh, you know, so simple yet uh, you know so effective because you can actually adjust those uh, those uh, tabs. For any kettle size, you put any yep. kettle size on those things and adjust them so it holds your kettle centered over the uh, the burner, so it's not going to fall off one way or the other. You don't have to worry yeah. about uh, earthquakes. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. You could <laughs> brew in Haiti with this thing. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right.
6: The uh, one of the main reasons we did that was for um, kettle users because that that's a non it's, a, it's not a flat bottom pot, uh, and you know if that gets moved over a little too close. Uh, that can be a stability issue.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
6: So, yeah. and we also made sure to uh, uh, accommodate a pot or a you know a keg uh, on that on that burner.
2: All right. Right. Okay. Great. Great information. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, John Blickman, for for uh, joining us and and thank you again. I, I know I've told you in private, but, uh, haven't had a chance to tell you on the air, uh, you know, thank you very much for sponsoring the show. It, it yeah, makes really a, that. a big difference to us. And, uh, you know, you're, you're essentially paying for, uh, all these people that, uh, listen to the show to listen for free. So I'm sure they, they appreciate it greatly.
6: Uh, you're certainly welcome. I've been, uh, just very thrilled and excited, uh, about, uh, being the sponsor for the show. It, you know, the kind of topics to talk about are, are the kind of things uh, that I think about when I'm designing products, and, uh, you know, I'm just glad when I was uh, talking with John at the 2009 NHC, he uh, walked me over and introduced me to Justin, and I uh, learned uh, more about the Brewers Network, and uh, really uh, uh, was excited to jump on board, and you'll probably see me here for quite a while.
3: Great, great. Cool. Thanks a lot Well, thanks for joining us. All right.
6: Oh, certainly. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll get into, uh, you know, what's actually happening to the wort during the boil. Back after this.
1: Brew right. Brew smart. Brew strong. This is Brew. Strong.
0: When Blickman Engineering set out to design a great brewing stand, they knew it had to be strong, adaptable, and last for a lifetime. The top-tier brewing stand is now proudly available at BlickmanEngineering.com. It grows with your brewing skills and equipment, Starting with 5-gallon coolers on its heavy-gauge stainless steel shelves. Then move all the way up to 30-gallon pots on the high-output burner tiers. Speaking of burners, the custom Blickman Engineering top-tier burners are extremely powerful, efficient, and amazingly quiet. They have safety stops to center your pot, and they'll last a lifetime and won't rust. The top-tier brewing stand allows virtually infinite combinations from traditional gravity systems to two tiers to completely horizontal. Configure your stand the way you want and have the freedom to change it at any time in the future your brewing stand should adapt with you not force you to learn a new process visit blickmanengineering.com today to configure your top tier brewing stand and to find a local blickman retailer you'll be surprised with all the flexible features and the competitive price start brewing with blickman from the top tier
4: Downtown Joe's, located in the historic Oberon Building in beautiful downtown Napa, California, offers an award-winning brew pub experience from 8.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. For 15 years at the corner of 2nd and Main, Downtown Joe's has been voted Best Night Spot seven times and Best Brew Pub for the last four years in a row. Brewmaster Colin Kaminsky's handcrafted ales, like his tail wagon Amber Ale and Catherine the Great Imperial Stout, are the perfect accent to riverside dining, live music, and a relaxing outdoor patio. Don't miss the Beer of the Month, special rotating taps, and happy hour all day Mondays. Visit downtownjoes.com to make reservations, peruse their extensive calendar of events, or just read more about their fantastic beers. Come enjoy the fine beer, food, and music. Downtown Joe's, the award-winning brew pub where you'll feel at home. Where were we? You stole an oak barrel from the
8: mist of Ravenwood and Lord Zinfandel the Avenger is in pursuit. Do you drop the barrel and run?
0: Hell of no. We need it for a Flanders Red. I'm going to cast Pediacoccus Damnathus on the barrel.
8: Sorry, your ghosts are imprisoned in his winery forever. Oh,
0: I hate it when Greg's the brewmaster. This sucks.
8: What do we have here, Orville
0: Rodenbach? Buzz off, guy. We got a brew session going. Is that an actual beer?
1: Yeah, I crafted it. I don't really use the dice anymore. I'm a 10th-level beer nerd.
0: Are you a 10th-level beer nerd? Do you get a long-lasting foam stand when you think about wheat malt? Then you're in good company at Northern Brewer. Northern Brewer has all your beer nerd needs. Ingredients, equipment, and knowledge at northernbrewer.com. Plus, fast, cheap shipping. Only $7.99 for the contiguous USA. And check out Northern Brewer's huge selection of dorky beer kits, including the pre-prohibition lager. Perfect for steampunk. And the single hop best bitter. Now on cap and 10 forward. Make 10th-level at Northern northernbrewer.com. <laughs> What's going on man? Oh
8: my god, it was the best time. We hit like more than 30 breweries and uh totally the best of the best, you know. Uh 21st Amendment, Russian River, uh Firestone, the the brewery dudes, uh freaking friggin' Triple Rock, uh the Double Daddy guys, Speakeasy, Linden, and uh Firehouse, Gordon B's, Drake's dude, on and on ale industries, moonlight, it was totally awesome. And and it was the uh and it was the first annual. You know, I got to be at the Earth, the inception you only get one first time baby what's that oh it was the uh, it was the brewing network's first
5: annual winter brew's festival i just sat down and went what do we want and that's how we tried to plan this
8: live music great food ah oh, man it was a uh, saturday january 30th you really should have gone check out the brewing Network.com on tap to see what you missed or did
0: you the first annual brewing network winter brew's festival is coming up january 30th don't miss it
4: In the past year, the Brewing Network has been able to add two new shows, expand our studio capabilities and quality, and bring more beer information home to you than ever before. In no small part, this is due to subscribers like you. Thank you from all of us at the Brewing Network. Without your monthly support of any denomination, we could not bring you the very best in live beer radio like Can You Brew It? Brew Strong and The Sunday Session. Haven't signed up yet? Join your fellow brewers in the BN Army. Sign up today at thebrewingnetwork.com for a recurring donation as little as $2 a month. Besides all the great live radio you'll support, every subscriber is automatically entered in monthly raffles for amazing brew gear like a conical firm Minute, a temperature control system or your own draft setup become a part of the be an army today
8: you will what you feel like take awesome and multiply it by two yeah
1: <laughs> spraying live beer radio all over your face <laughs> can't get any better than this baby Woo! it's the brewing network Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong.
2: All right, we're back. We're talking about the boil. And uh, one question that came in, I guess, uh, already was, uh, you know, what is a rolling boil? You know, when we're talking rolling boil, we're talking about, uh, um, you know, a simmer is where uh, just like little bubbles are, are rising to the surface
3: yeah the surface looks really kind of flat, just mm-hmm. slightly agitated
2: from the little bubbles popping up but mm-hmm. flat rolling boil is when or and a boil is where I guess you're getting you know more surface action, larger bubbles or a greater volume of bubbles mm-hmm. and then a rolling boil is where the you see actually you know like little lumps in the surface round yeah. lumps in the surface where you can see the the word turning over. And uh, that's what you mean by a rolling boil. And then a violent boil would be, you know, where stuff's leaping out and hitting you in the face. Uh, you can wear it flying all over the place. And, uh, you know, you can't control your uh, your yeah. firing of wort all over the place. Yeah, you're, if, you, if your boil
3: is that heavy, you're probably going to get some scorching. Yeah,
2: and it, it just doesn't do a whole lot of good. Well, and let's... um. We've got on the phone with us uh, Jeremy Robb from uh, uh, Eagle Rock Brewery. Jeremy, you there? Yeah, hey guys. Hey, hey thanks Jim. for joining us. Yeah, hey, no problem. So, uh, real quickly, uh, give us a, a, a real quick breakdown of uh, your background and uh, Eagle Rock Brewery.
9: Well, started out like like most uh, small brewers out there as a home brewer. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad and I. Uh, have been brewing pretty seriously together for about, like I guess, seven years now. Um, and I guess, like every home brewer, you just, you know, you, you get more into it. You start geeking out, getting the cooler equipment, and start doing all the, the research and, and background and understanding the process. And uh, we got kicked out of the kitchen, into the garage, <laughs> and mm-hmm. eventually out of the garage into uh, the place we have now, so...
2: So you've essentially turned a really good hobby into uh, work. Into work. <laughs> That's
9: right. <laughs> it's funny because I uh, I always joke that you know I used to be in the film industry and uh, I was always kind of complaining about the work life balance and and not having much of a of a life outside of work. But for now, you know, I, I have absolutely Even worse <laughs> no life outside of work.
3: So. Uh, but you make some really good beer, though. Oh well, thank you.
2: All right, so uh, Jeremy, um, what what, do you, what are brewers looking for out of the boil? I mean, what you know what's what's the what's the whole purpose of boiling the wort? Well,
9: um, as as most people know that the, the um, really main purposes are sterilizing the wort, mm-hmm. killing off um, any of the especially lactobacillus, which is on the grain. Um, after milling, and it survives through mashing. Um, so to kill off that, any other uh, bacteria that might be present, um, concentrating the wort, evaporating uh, excess water, so concentrating your sugars and, um, and creating uh, flavor and color, getting that melanoidin production, getting some color development into your wort, um, and getting, also increasing your gravity, um and then uh really one of the the biggest things besides those is is uh isomerizing your hops and and um, uh solubilizing the the hop components after they're isomerized and getting
3: the and then, bitterness in yeah
9: yeah exactly yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um so that was one of the big differences um you know from from home brewing and, and using. Uh, starting out on the kitchen stove, and really having a, a, a anemic boil, <laughs> um, not having the power to to get a good rolling boil, mm-hmm. and then going into our garage and having um, the, the the turkey burners, those Cajun cookers that that a lot of homebrewers have, um, and and that's basically a direct fire method where the the flames are hitting the bottom of the kettle and, and heating it up. But then the biggest difference for us in the boil going to the the commercial sized system, a 15 barrel system is uh, our kettle is steam fired, and so you know there's there's some differences there as far as um, you know with a, with a direct flame you're getting a lot more caramelization
3: more um, intensity huh
9: yeah, exactly yeah mm-hmm. so that that was that was a big difference. Um, us and moving up to a bigger size system.
3: And how, how did you, I mean, did you see or taste differences in the beer, you know, from the homebrew scale to the commercial scale at first?
9: Yeah, we did, um, we, we sort of anticipated we were, we were going to run into some unexpected uh, results just from moving to the bigger system. And so we did a, a half batch for our first, very first batch. And what we noticed was we got um, a lot more bitterness than, than we even anticipated You know, using brewing software and, and calculations to figure out um, the, the hopping rate for the bigger system, but even then, it was more bitter than, than we had anticipated. Um, oh. Yeah, so it, I guess part of that is probably the surface-to-volume ratio um, being being uh, less. Much better, and then,
7: yeah, or and, right, right,
9: and then also the um, the just the kind of more intense heat, the more intense um, uh, solubilization of the hops components. So, hmm. um, but yeah, that was that was a big difference, and it took a little bit of adjustment, but we we figured it out pretty quick, and and uh, we're able to use that half batch and blend it um, with it with another. And you know, we did a a less bitter batch. Based on what we had learned, and then blended the two to get our, our target beer. So,
3: how deep is your boil when you're when you're doing a, a full batch?
9: Do you mean like a depth, as far as uh, from the surface to the bottom of the kettle? Right. Um, it's it it ranges from if we really get a good efficient mash um, and and we have a, a full kettle, um, it's about I guess about between four and five feet deep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, or if, if we don't get such an efficient mash and, and uh, our, our gravity isn't uh, as high as we, we need, then um, we'll get a little bit low, you know, three to four feet, I'd say. I nice so. Okay. Ranging anywhere from that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what, what, what length boil are you doing there? One of the parts of the question that uh, Scott had was, um, you know, some breweries they're doing 90 minutes, some breweries are doing 60 minutes. Some breweries, you know, what 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 length boil are you using and, and why?
9: Mostly we're using a 60-minute boil. Um and the reason there is just um uh, because uh we don't want to unnecessarily use more energy than and we have to. Mm-hmm. Um to to keep the boil going, mm-hmm. um, the um, there are a couple beers that we do a longer boil with. Uh, we do a ninety-minute boil. We just did our, our um, first specialty beer, which is uh, an imperial amber wit beer, and um, basically it's it's like a bigger version of a wit beer, but with a lot of Munich malt as the base malt instead mm-hmm. instead of pilsner malt. So, mm. but the the objective there was to do a longer boil to kind of get more kettle caramelization and increase that that malt ca- uh, character. So,
3: mm-hmm. uh, okay, yeah, you get a lot more melanoidin development. Yeah,
9: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Now, John, you've been fond of saying, "Well, okay, you you don't technically get caramelization in, in the <laughs> in the kettle; <laughs> you get melanoidins." And I always say, "Well, they taste like caramel uh, type yeah. of compound." <laughs> That's true. They, they, they are the
3: compounds are very similar, uh-huh. um, but you need you know temperatures in excess of two twenty to get uh, caramelization as opposed to melanoidin formation, mm-hmm. um, and you need a much. Uh, I mean, technically, you need uh, oxygen like a, as well, don't you? Right. Uh, not so much oxygen, but you need a, need a very high concentration of sugar, mm-hmm. um, almost like r- really boiling malt extract would mm-hmm. give you that level of, that ratio of moisture to sugar right. uh, necessary for true caramelization. Mm-hmm. But oh. um, now,
9: what about... Sorry, um, I, I have a actually a related question, though, because what about um, uh, with some, some of the home brews we had done in the past, we would put a little bit of wort into the bottom of the kettle mm-hmm. and really boil that hard until it started to, to caramelize or... Yeah maybe not caramelized. Yeah, I think you're
3: state. probably getting it there because right. you've got you've got a, a very high heat, you know, for mm-hmm. a small volume of liquid and you can and certainly at the fr- at the edges of that you can achieve, you know, these 220 uh, type temperatures mm-hmm. uh, over the 212, you know, the boil.
2: Well, especially if you get it down to a syrup, I know if you take the first runnings in like yeah. a wee heavy, you take the first runnings and you boil that down when it gets to a syrup um, the thing about the uh, I believe the thicker a uh, a liquid is the the higher the viscosity the more heat it takes to, to yeah the to boiling boil up yeah so mm-hmm. your boiling point rises so you do reach that that 220 yeah uh, and then um, there's plenty of oxygen and other and sh- the sugars are concentrated and so you're you're truly getting caramelization at that point right just not when you have a full kettle then then you get some of those flavors but uh, is by I... melanoidin formation melanoidin. instead, okay, okay,
3: right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it, the hydrostatic pressure, uh, you know, when you get to, you know, five foot depth, you know that that that, that also increases the boiling point of the liquid uh, mm-hmm. by a couple degrees, mm-hmm. and uh, so that can change your your melanoidins and it can improve your isomerization, mm-hmm. um, because the 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 rate of isomerization does increase linearly with
2: temperature. Right. But, so,
3: But you're only going to get a, a couple degrees. You're not going to get, you
2: know. Now, all right, so one of the things that, that you develop over, you know, a longer boil is more color, more melanoid formation. I think um, Chris Colby uh, at BYO, he did a, uh, an experiment uh, where he boiled uh, like a, an all-pilsner uh, malt uh, wort, uh, you know, boiled, you know, some of it for, you know, 60 minutes, some of it for 90 minutes, you know, whatever, and, and went out to like three hours and compared the colors and really didn't have a whole lot of color development. Now, I, I think that um, that's absolutely true. So you don't get a whole lot, but um, it also depends on the wort, right? Uh, you know, the the different uh, components you might have in a wort and, and, you know... Uh, that may have an effect as well. Is is that true or, or no?
9: I would I would think so.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean,
3: it is true. The okay. different wort compositions will encourage, you know, different reactions. And so it,
2: it even depends on the the proteins present, right?
3: Right. The yeah, um, you'll get different melanoidins, different flavors uh, from Munich malt. Uh, such as Jeremy was saying with the 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 imperial amber wit um, versus a pale malt, because uh, they're a little different protein a little different um, uh, what's the word I want to you know the combination of proteins you know mm-hmm. as those form melanoidins with the sugars you 're going to have uh, different sugars in a in a darker colored malt um, and those will combine with the higher melanoidins. And produce different characteristic flavors. So, it's you know the, the the characteristic flavors that we get from different malts are in great part a result of the melanoidins those malts form in the boil. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's it varies with the color and it varies with the the amount of heat you put in, the intensity of the boil, the length of the boil, the gravity of the boil. Um, all those combine to. Mm-hmm. Drive the different
2: melanoid formations, mm-hmm. and uh, so perhaps if you did a protein rest, uh, you'd get a, a different set of melanoidin characteristics. Probably generally the same, but uh, maybe slightly, slightly, different. slightly different, or or maybe more rapid or or less rapid uh, formation of melanoids. I mean, I'm not sure if that's melanoids are long long proteins, short proteins, or what.
3: Well, I think what it, I think what it drives is. That when you are trying to clone a beer, a commercial beer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of look online or call the brewer. Or, you know, try to get some feel for how they're conducting the making of that beer. Are they using a long boil? Are they using uh, a low gravity wort and boiling it for a long time to a high gravity? Are they doing a fairly high gravity wort with a short boil to get to their OG? You know, if the more that you mimic the the way that boil is conducted, the closer you will get to the to achieving the same flavor mm-hmm. because those those melanoin paths are very you know technique um, dependent
2: hmm. okay well let's do this let's take a short break and when we come back we'll get more into uh, how the boil affects your work back after this <laughs>
1: your carboy cab on this is brew strong we'll be right back
10: do you support the brewing network Do you brew your own? Are you looking for an economical, fun and legal way to do both? Subscribe to Brew Your Own magazine and do just that. All year long, Brew Your Own will surprise you entertain you, and educate you with articles on beer and brewing from authors like the Brewing Network's very own Jamel Zalesha and John Palmer. Each issue is a full pint of brewing techniques, homebrew stories, tips and photos, projects to make yourself, and recipes for the avid home brewer. Get your tough questions answered by Mr. Wizard, and polish your style accuracy with Jamel. A portion of every subscription goes to the Brewing Network, so subscribe today at byo.com slash Network, or just click the BYO logo on the Brewing Network homepage and support a fantastic hobby and your favorite broadcaster. Brew your own. The How-To Homebrew Beer Magazine. Hey, what are you doing, man?
0: Writing a review of WLP400. What? You're reviewing yeast? Yeah. White Labs has home brewer reviews of all their strains. Are you new to these interwebs? Check it out. That's awesome. White Labs, your source for great yeast, invites all brewers to visit whitelabs.com to read and write your own reviews of all their yeast strains. Get real-world tips and tricks from other brewers who have made the most of their vials and post your own experiences. It's another way White Labs brings you closer to the best yeast on the planet. And send. There you go. You misspelled flocculate, dude. What? Ah. a f White Labs. It's all in the vial.
8: Hi, this is Push from the Brewing Network, and I want to tell you about the Brewmaster's warehouse and how you can get 10% off your next order. I'm a pretty techie guy, but I've never seen an online store like this. It's awesome. Brewmasters Warehouse and the brew builder blew me away. Check it out today at brewmasterswarehouse.com. I'm serious. And don't forget to put BNARMY in the discount code box for 10% off your order. Check out brewmasterswarehouse.com. Cheers.
0: an Army members. Are you looking for a discount on hops? Keep listening. Nico's Homebrew Supply at nicobrew.com has hops by the ounce and by the pound. Choose from varieties like Amarillo, Centennial, East Kent Goldings, Hollertower, Simcoe, Summit, Tomahawk, Warrior, Willamette, and more. And adding new varieties all the time, many for less than 20 bucks a pound. Whether a couple ounces at a time or an 11-pound bag, all hops are shipped vacuum-sealed and frozen straight to you. Nico's Homebrew Supply offers store-wide $5 flat-rate shipping and won't waste your money on unnecessary overhead or advertising. They're going bare bones and passing the savings on to you. The staff at Nico's Homebrew Supply loves to brew and is committed to keeping homebrewing affordable and accessible to anyone who wants to join in this great hobby. And for a limited time, use coupon code BNARMY at checkout for a Brewing Network discount. Visit nicobrew.com. That's N-I-K-O brew.com. For your hops and more, nicobrew.com, your bare bones buddy in the brewing business. Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Finn. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire her up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. Uh, The new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew stand, too, but five bucks instead of 25. Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where else? The more beer deal of the day. Announcing the Beer, Beer, and More Beer deal of the day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away. Boil kennels, carboy carriers, sterile siphon starters, digital timers. Watch morebeer.com every day for a new deal, and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe. Hurry, because stock is limited on most items. And that sweet Guinness cap, let me guess. The,
8: the more, more Beer, beer deal, deal of day. the day. Yeah, I knew it. Come on, let's brew something. Find the More Beer Deal of the Day at morebeer.com. Celebrity Voices impersonated.
2: You're listening to the Brewing Network.
1: Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong.
2: All right, we're back. We're talking about the boil. We got Jeremy Raub on the uh, on the line with us uh, from the Eagle Rock Brewery in uh, California, and uh, so uh, I want to get back to uh, you know what happens during the boil, and uh, you know, obviously, one of the things that happens that's important is the enzyme activity ceases. So you've you've got all these enzymes in there that have you know when you rinse out your mash. Those enzymes end up in the co- in the kettle, and if you didn't actually boil, they'd continue to work to whatever extent they could. So by boiling, you stop those enzymes from working. And then also there's a lot of proteins in the in the wort that come from the grain as well, and those uh, are coagulated by the boil, by the boiling action. They're uh, denatured and get all clumpy and stuck together. And then... Uh, uh, uh Palmer's got got uh, he's producing gas for for his <laughs> burner. Um, no, I was just enjoying a tasty beer. <laughs> okay. And then uh one of the things about that that protein coagulation, uh hot break and also cold break, right? So one of the uh the things that's happening that the proteins are are clumping together with the tannins and uh, uh, you get these clumps, these these uh these uh flocks of uh, of uh break material now what what determines you know uh, people will say oh, okay yeah i use this pilsner malt and i see it looks like egg drop soup i use um you know uh you know domestic two row and i don't see hardly any or you know whatever whatever the the grains might be you know a lot of it's uh, dependent on i guess the the amount of proteins in the malt, uh, whether you do uh, a protein rest, and what else? Would it be something like pH that affects uh, the, the break yeah. material that you see?
9: Yeah, definitely. Um, at the, the, actually, one of the important things that happens in the boil is uh, the pH lowers. Um, so, you know, they, they talk about the ideal pH for a, a mash being around Five six, maybe as high as, as five eight, um, but that's kind of the ideal. You always hear, you know, five point six being the ideal number for a, a mash pH. Well, then in the boil, um, the uh, the there's actually um, some processes that that reduce the pH. One of which is uh, like calcium starts to pre- pre- precipitate out. Um, bringing some phosphates with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it brings the pH down to, uh, like, in the range of, like, 5.2 to, to 5.4. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the lower pH helps those um, proteins start to uh, combine with the, the tannin compounds from the, that are present in there from, from the husks um, and also from the tannins from the, uh, the hop, hop components. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of but- collide and combine.
3: It kind of brings up a question some some listeners may have, is like, why why do we want the proteins to coagulate?
9: Um, well, uh, it's actually, it helps kind of stabilize and, and get rid of um, the, the, those unstable ones. Um,
3: Haze formers and so Hays on? Haze
9: formers, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, um, it actually helps... Uh, Give you more flavor stability in your finished beer. To have those proteins out, like John was mentioning, haze
3: formers, um, they can take they can participate in uh, in redox reactions. Participate in staline reactions by donating, um, you know, oxygen, and not necessarily oxygen itself, but participate in an oxidizing reaction in the right. beer. Right, mm-hmm.
9: right. A lot of people. Um, might might just disregard haze as as well i don't care so much about what my beer looks like i just want it to taste good but that's a actually a big um a big factor is Hmm. like john is saying that the haze can do more than just make a beer look cloudy
2: so so some of it depends on calcium present to precipitate out and form a, a calcium phosphate and precipitate out during the boil so if, uh, you know, you're low on calcium in the in the kettle, uh, that could have a problem there. I guess uh, that's one of the benefits of adding something like gypsum. It, uh, you know, it makes more calcium available as part of uh, right. uh, of that reaction. Right. Yeah. Definitely.
3: And that, that kind of feeds back to our water show, Jamil, where we talk about, you know, minimum levels of calcium mm-hmm. to help clarification of the work. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and somebody asked me recently about uh, uh, calcium in the mash. If you add calcium in the mash, or it's calcium in your in your water, uh, you know how much of it gets bound up in the mash. I mean, is is the uh, is the the calcium becoming chelated in the mash and uh, staying there, dropping out, or you know, does that uh, does the majority of calcium make it over into the uh, the boil kettle, or any any sort of idea as to how much is lost if that's the case?
3: That's a good question. I, is from what I've read, I think a lot of uh, brewing scientists kind of look at look at the wort boil or the mash and the boil as kind of a black box, uh-huh. where they're saying, okay, we know that there's m- this much calcium going in, you know, in the water that we're using. Uh-huh. Maybe we're making calcium additions, trying to get the the minimum ppm of calcium up to like fifty ppm or a hundred. Um, and we know we get good beer out the back end, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh a couple times people have uh, sent me data that they've done when you know analyzing their beer, and uh, the calcium level has dropped, but I haven't seen a consistent change in that calcium number. Mm-hmm. so I think you know it it depends it depends on the type of beer you're brewing. The uh, the yeast, the, you know, the, the vigor of fermentation, I think a lot of factors feed into, you know, exactly how much calcium gets bound up um, and used for various reactions during, you know, the boil, the mash, the boil, and fermentation. Um, but uh, at least, you know, brewers have established over the years that 50 to 150 going in makes for good beer. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and, uh, you know, the, the the question always comes up, well, you know, how are the the brewers of Pilsen uh you know, making making their pilsners if, you know, their water doesn't have uh anything in it and and the interesting thing that uh, I found uh, uh Tony uh from uh, Fish Brewing uh he got a water sample there from uh, Pilsner Urquell and uh, had it analyzed and sure enough it's got uh, over 50 uh or about 50 parts per million. Uh, available calcium, calcium so yeah.
3: <laughs> it's like okay there's a lot there of you calcium go. comes from the malt too
2: right yeah there's malt
3: contributes there's, i mean okay. if you if you if you tailor your malting practice you know i mean and and hundreds of years ago each brewery had their own malting house you okay. know you didn't have commercial maltsters that you know brought truckloads everybody had mm-hmm. their own mm-hmm. and so they would tailor their malt and uh, their brewing process to to a to get that calcium, you know, out of the malt and, uh, you know, long, long boil to aid clarification, long fermentation to aid clarification, um, to kind of make up for, um, the, the lack of a potential lack of calcium that directly aids clarification. So, uh, there's, there's a whole, you know, balance there going on to those, to those local conditions that drove that style of beer. Mm.
2: Very interesting. All right, so um, what haven't we covered on uh, uh, the <laughs> Where boil? Where were oh, uh, You know, uh, the uh, volatil- volatilization of uh, various uh, aromatic compounds, uh, you know, talk to talk to me a little bit about that so uh we've got sulfur compounds we've got uh other hop com- oils and things like that that they get boiled off um are, are there other things that are you know getting uh, volatilized is there is there phenols or anything like that that also uh, come off
9: um i don't i don't think phenols so much um uh, not that i'm aware of anyways but uh Definitely the, the biggest one that, that everybody um, talks about is, is DMS and those sulfur compounds and the, the kind of precursors to DMS. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that that That's one of those big unwanted ones. Um, so some of the, the hop uh, components might not be unwanted. I mean, you know, that's uh, the whole idea with... Um, you know, adding adding hops right at the end of the boil to control your level of flavors and aromas. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, um, I'm not aware of any, any phenol uh, activity in the boil. I don't know, maybe,
3: John, or I, you. I don't believe there is. Um, Anything from the malt? From the, the husks. yeah, you get, you get... Um, uh polyphenols t- uh, coming from the husks, tannins, mm, tannins. and so a lot of those will be, yeah, a lot of those will be bound up with the hop break.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, uh, the 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 aromatic phenols that uh, we kind of associate with uh, with beers, with finished beers, mm-hmm. um, I don't, at least as far as I know, and I could be wrong, I don't think those are driven by the boil in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah i could be I could be missing the uh, forest for the trees where maybe um, the whatever small phenols we get are you know, dependent on the the hot break action and during the boil um you know what whatever's left over um, the the uh the the amount of phenols or the the phenol profile that we get in a finished beer depends on the the amount of hot break generated that that could very well be Mm -hmm. um i don't have uh don't have any information in front of me but uh yeah the most of it as jeremy says is the uh the sulfur Mm uh getting the getting those aromatics out um that can you know uh, you know lead to off flavors in the beer okay yeah Um, and that's and as we've we've discussed in the past, I think Jamil, a lot of that's dependent on which malts you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to ask Jeremy, you know what what base malts do you usually brew with, and is that driving the length of your boil that you use?
9: Um, as far as uh, it relates to, to, to like DMS and that and that sort of
7: thing, right, right,
9: not not really. Um, we are pretty confident, just. You know, based on all the home brewing that we've done, just um, that that a 60-minute boil is enough to drive off um, DMS in, in the lighter beers that we do. Um, but uh, you know, I, I guess there there could be some problems. There's always seems like on a brew day you're always bound to run into a, a problem or two, and and sometimes you know. You may end up with a with wort in your kettle after the boil longer than you anticipated. Uh-huh. And then, you know,
3: you get some additional DMS formation there.
9: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um,
3: do, do you use mostly pills malt or are you using domestic two-row or?
9: Uh, we're using, um, like for our wit beer, we're using pills malt and um, and the we kind of uh, do a blend of between. Uh, like Castle Malt, the Belgian Pilsner and uh, Weirman um, okay. Pilsner Malt um, kind of depends on availability but um, that's we're trying to stick to those two malts right now um, for consistency but both of those um, you know they are the, the lightest of, of, of the malts um, widely available and uh, so there's I guess you know, to to really to answer your question, there's there's not um, it doesn't affect so much our decision for boil time um, when we're thinking about the 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 malts that we're using. We're more thinking about developing that, a malt um, a multi-profile or getting you know relating more to the melanoidin production than to uh, okay. BMS volatilization. Uh,
2: yeah. So uh, the reason why the 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 malt matters so much for for the listeners is that. Um, yeah, you know, The lower kiln the malt is, the less uh, the heat that was applied during the kilning of the malt, the less uh, the DMS uh, precursor, the SMM, was converted to DMS and driven off during the, the kilning process. So there's more left in the malt when you go and brew with that. It ends up in your kettle. And uh, so the lighter that base grain you're using, the more that precursor you have in your kettle As you boil, that SMM gets converted to DMS, DMS gets volatilized, gets blown out, and uh, over a period of time, you end up essentially driving off all the the precursor and the DMS, and your beer has no DMS. So that's why... Yeah, you, know, you go with a longer boil. It's said that I guess about a, at a hundred minutes, um, you know, no matter what the malt, you should, you know, end up with no DMS in your beer. Uh that's why, you know, if you go uh using brewing classic styles, we always recommend if you're using a lot of pilsner malt to go to a ninety minute boil. If you're if you're not, you can go with a sixty minute boil. And I I'm sure it depends also a lot on uh the vigor know, of the boil. The vigor How? of the boil, the design of the uh the equipment. Um, you know, a lot of people they uh, a lot of homebrewers they have trouble getting a boil. They'll they'll cover their their pot. The problem with that is the steam rises, it collects on the on the kettle lid, it drops back down into the boil, and you end up not uh, uh, blowing off all that uh, that uh, DMS. So that's a yeah, problem with a covered boil.
9: That's one of the interesting things with uh, with our, our our big boil kettle is. You know, it's, it's essentially always covered because it's, uh, uh-huh. it has a, a dome on the top with a, with a vent stack that goes up and out. Um, so it's the vent, it's always venting to the, to the outside, although the, the dome kind of acts as a, as a cover for the, for the kettle. So uh-huh. it's really important for us to get a, a really vigorous boil to drive it up and, and out of the, the vent stack but what's really kind of cool is if you have seen our kettle, um, there's a, a, a small pipe coming out of the side just at the bottom of the stack. And what it's a drain, essentially. So
3: For all that what, volatilized goo. The condensate. Huh? <laughs> yeah.
9: So if a home brewer is, is covering um, their boil to try and increase it, and you were saying how that is going to condense on the lid and then kind of drip back in. Or mm-hmm. it just won't get volatized out at all, and so that little drain on our on our on our stack is is kind of cool because all of the condensation in the in the vent drips back down, mm-hmm. but there's a little lip that catches it and, and directs it out so mm-hmm. it doesn't drip back down
2: into the beer. Right. And what I've heard, uh, I've never sampled that, but I've heard it's uh, quite nasty. It's, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, full of DMS and other things. All right. Well, uh, we're gonna need to take another short break. But let me let me uh, first. Um, I wanna I want one more one more thing about the about the boil cold break. All right. So hot break by the boil vigor by the temperature being over a certain point and pH. Now cold break that's formed essentially the same way. You know it's insoluble at colder temperatures. So when you chill it down. Uh, you're you're getting that break material, and again, it's the same sort of precipitation of proteins and tannins and other things, right? Um, now, cold break that that isn't um, is is that dependent on the boil in any way? Uh, is it necessary to get good hot break in order to get cold break? That we know if there's a, a connection there or or not.
9: Um. I, maybe John has more insight into the the technical side of it, but I I know that um, you know when I from just experience doing uh, really vigorous boils, and then it seems like there's there's more cold break. So um, I think there's definitely a, a relation there. There's setting up the the reactions that cause the 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 hot break to occur. Um, I think it's Setting up some similar compounds that uh, are just insoluble at the colder temperatures, so they're set up in the boil and then drop out when the, when the temperature drops. But again, I don't know, John. Maybe you have some more technical insight to that.
3: Well, no, unfortunately, not really. But um, it, from what I do understand the the vigor of the boil can uh, you know draw it, it is going to promote certain reactions and denaturization. Um, set up uh, precursors for the cold break. So, you know, as you're saying, you know, with a vo- more vigorous boil, you're, you know, you're seeing a better cold break. I think what what's happening is that um, you're setting up more precursors that on the, you know, on cooling are more readily able to coagulate. Um, cold break tends to be a very fine uh, flock uh, it is opposed to the hot break, which looks like egg drop soup. I mean very large clumps. Cold break, break tends to be very fine. Um and uh I think the the uh the cold I think the degree of cold break or the, the uh the amount of it uh has some dependence on the temperature rate, but um also it's, you know, dependent on the final temperature. So it's um slightly rate dependent but uh more dependent on, you know, what temperature you finally get it down to. If you're only cooling your wort down to eighty degrees, you know, before you pitch the be- you know, pitch the yeast and start uh fermenting, you're gonna have uh more of those protein, you know, proteins in solution for the fermentation as that slowly cools down to your fermentation temperature than if you were able to cool that beer down to sixty uh before fermenting. And uh, you'd see you know, see a cleaner-tasting beer uh, and a clearer beer by uh, cooling more
2: before fermentation. Right. Yeah. You, you actually have to get it down to about freezing and, and filter it to actually get out all the, the cold. Get it all out. Yeah, right. right. All right. So, uh, Jeremy, uh, can you stick with us through uh, the break and, and answer some questions from the chat? Yeah, definitely. All right. So we'll take a short break. When we come back, your questions answered live.
1: Brew strong. This is Brew Strong.
0: From the stovetop to a camp burner to some kind of brew stand. Most homebrewers follow some version of this progression. With each move, a homebrewer will often have to change a lot, if not all, of their equipment. Until now. Blickman Engineering brings you the top-tier brewing stand. The only brewing stand that grows with you. For example, buy a top-tier floor-standing burner now, and it'll bolt right to your top-tier brewing stand when you're ready for all-grain brewing. The top-tier brewing stand is perfect for 5-gallon to 20-gallon batch sizes. Its modular design is adjustable and accommodates everything from small footprint coolers up to 30-gallon pots. How does the top-tier brewing stand do it? At its core is a strong, heat-treated and anodized aluminum main post. On all four sides are built-in T-slots for the adjustable heavy-gauge stainless steel shelves and beefy burner tiers. The tiers accommodate any manufacturer's pots or coolers up to 21 inches in diameter best of all not only does the top tier brewing stand grow with your skills and equipment but it easily knocks down for long term storage or transport too the top tier brewing stand from blickman engineering learn more at blickmanengineering.com and to find a local blickman retailer and start brewing from the top tier Nico, listen, our lawyers said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the next meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. <clears throat> You can find our world famous Heller High Watermelon Wheat Beer and Brew for Your Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans.
3: Because everyone likes it in a can.
4: Tasty crack cans.
3: Tasty crack cans. <laughs>
4: Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse our vast selection. That's williamsbrewing.com. Orders placed by 3.30 p.m. Pacific time ship the same day. Brewing is easy the Williams way. There's an app on the iPhone
0: for just about everything, including beer, apps for finding a pint of beer, Apps that look like you're drinking a pint of beer. And now, there's an app for brewing a pint of beer. Introducing BrewPal, the most all-inclusive beer brewing app for professionals and hobbyists that fits in your pocket and goes wherever you do. Recipe formulation that can be imported and exported with a customizable database. Mash and sparge calculations, yeast pitching rates, carbonation tables, and more. Available right now. For less coin than a pound of grain. See BrewPal in action at brewpal.info and download it for your iPhone at a special introductory price right now. BrewPal. All the brewing software you need. Right in your pocket.
8: This is www.thebrewinnetwork.com
5: Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're listening
4: to The Brewing Network.
1: Back to your hosts, Jamil Chef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong.
2: All right, we're back. Uh, you know what I realized? You know, when we first came up with this topic, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, there's there's a good 45 minutes worth of material, and then, uh, yeah, we'll just BS for the, the other 15 minutes, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, today I'm realizing, yeah, this is about a four-hour topic, and we're we're trying to cram it into an hour, and here we're running close to an hour and a half. All right, so uh, we got we got uh, more more stuff to get to. So let's quickly uh, work through the questions in the chat room. What do we got, Justin?
5: Okay, just a couple of good questions for you. Uh, one that I thought was interesting, uh, Funknets in the chat room, and he wants to know, hey, when I turn off my burner, it does that poof. And kind of shoots flames all over. I think all of our burners do that. What is that, and is it dangerous? This his question.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I guess it's uh, backfill where you get uh, the gas mixing with oxygen uh, in, the vin- in the venturi in the burner. And uh, it explodes and then, uh, you know, flames out.
5: So not dangerous? Oh, yeah.
3: You know, don't, don't put your face next to it. Right.
2: Yeah, but, don't uh, don't insert any body part into the uh, okay. orifice. Yes. Orifices.
9: If you're doing yeah. that, then uh, <laughs> you might have some other issues other <laughs> than burning yourself.
2: Are you familiar with our listeners? <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. And our founder, for that matter. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, and here's uh, last question that came from the chat today. You guys actually covered a lot of things. So um, this listener wants to know. Uh, it's about his evaporation rate for his brew pot, which you guys weren't able to get into today. But he said, if I did an experiment with water, you know, starting with, say, two and a half gallons and boiling for an hour and checking the final volume, how different is that from boiling wort? So how accurate is his water experiment?
2: Ah. How hmm. does wort gravity affect evaporation rate?
9: <clears throat>
2: or is boiling boiling and steam comes off in the same, regardless of the viscosity of the fluid? I, I mean, would imagine it affects it.
9: I would think so as well, but I, I think it's for for homebrewing purposes. I think it's probably negligible. I mean, it would get yeah. him, I think, really close to the ballpark of of what it is. And if he measures the pre-boil volume at you know the same temperature as he measures the post-boil volume, and then uh, figures yeah, out, you may see the, the same, yeah
3: yeah yeah i I think the the concentrations of sugars we're dealing with are not that are not that great in in the grand scheme of things, so probably only seeing you know um a difference of one degree uh in the actual boiling temperature of the of the wort versus the water and um yeah, probably probably changes are are very small. Mm-hmm. between between wort and water in this case.
5: Okay. Yeah. All right, and that's it uh, from the chat room today, guys. We can wrap it up.
2: Oh, you have a question about electric brewing?
5: Ah, oh, uh, that did yeah. come in earlier, yeah. yeah. The use of uh, uh, electric burners, elements in the bottom of your boil pot. Right. Or or just, those, we wanted you to discuss the heater, topic. Yeah. Water
2: heater elements. I think, you know, they tend to be popular in... Uh, uh, abroad uh, other outside the US because uh, people tend to have 220 volt uh, access easily in, in the US it tends to be only in you know specialized rooms of your house and uh, uh, with 220 you can get you can get uh, you know uh, boil much faster so that tends to make it uh, uh, more popular abroad I think. Uh you can do it. I think if the heating elements are too dense, too dense a uh, uh calories per per lineal inch of uh element, yeah, then uh you can get some some scorching on the on the elements, I think. Uh, at least that's what I heard. I haven't done a whole lot of electric uh boiling, so uh wouldn't wouldn't I haven't either.
3: Me. I've I think they're probably well they're probably more useful for heating up your, your hot liquor you know your the water mm-hmm. that you use then you um, run them full bore and not a problem yeah because um, you can't scorch the water but you would definitely start seeing changes in taste in the wort uh, if it's getting too hot but right. I, like you say Jamil I I don't have enough
2: experience with them to really comment right. okay well real quick Jeremy uh, where can we find your beers
9: um, hopefully soon you'll be able to find it in bottles um we're just waiting for our glass to <laughs> to arrive, really, to start bottling. But uh, right now, we're on tap uh, at about eleven or twelve uh, local restaurants and bars, and uh, you can. There's a listing of them right now in the Los website.
3: Angeles area. Uh-huh.
9: Yeah, in the Los Angeles area. Sorry, um, and on our website, there's a listing of, of the places that are that are pouring our beers right now. What's your website? Uh, www.eaglerockbrewery.com and uh, also, uh, we're, we're pouring our beers in our tasting room, too, which is attached to the brewery. So,
2: Great. I'm going to yeah. have to make my way down there. I've heard good things about your beers.
9: Definitely. Come on down. love to have you.
2: All right. I'll get down there. I'll taste some, and then uh, magically someone will put in a Can You Brew It request, and we'll have you back <laughs> on to uh, help us clone some cool. of your beers. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he makes a, a good us. mild uh, right. mild's oh, a yeah. style you probably haven't had on Can You Brew It, have you, Jamil? No, I don't think we have. Ah, cool. that'd be a good one. I, I, I'm always looking for uh, styles we haven't done on Can You Brew It, and mild is one of my favorites. So excellent. All right, I'm gonna have to get myself down there and uh, yeah. and taste it. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks also to our sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering. Uh, those guys, uh, they're helping uh, keep this, this show going, and we really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, John Blickman himself told me that uh, he really uh, got a lot of responses via email from uh, you guys and how excited he was to see that and, and appreciative he was. So you know, go ahead, if you haven't already... Uh, take the time to email uh, Blickman at uh, John Blickman at BlickmanEngineering, uh, dot engineeringcom and uh, you know tell him uh, how much you appreciate uh, that he's sponsoring the show also if you can go to brew your own magazine and subscribe through uh, either the uh, brewing network homepage or at BYO you can go to BYOcom slash brewing network and sign up there and half the uh, the subscription price goes to the Brewing network which is quite generous I think and uh, don't forget if you get a chance, uh, go to the Brew Network store. Check out all the goodies there. All sorts of uh, Brew Strong merchandise. You can wear Brew Strong hats, Brew Strong shirts, and uh, someday we'll have like Brew Strong—I don't know—underwear or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd wear it. I don't, I don't know about you. All right. And until uh, until next time, Brew Strong, Brew Strong, everybody.